Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month we look at one play over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. David Williamson is Australia's best-known and most widely performed playwright. He was the first person outside Britain to receive the George Devine Award for The Removalists, and the awards kept coming. They include 12 Augie Awards, five Australian Film Institute Awards for Best Screenplay, and in 1996, the United Nations Association of Australian Media Peace Award. In 2005, he was awarded the Richard Lane Award for services to the Australian Writers Guild. David has also received four honorary doctorates and been made an Officer of the Order of Australia. His prodigious output for the stage includes The Removalists, The Department, The Club, Travelling North, Emerald City, Brilliant Lies, Dead White Males, and the classic we're here to talk about today, Don's Party. It's election night, 1969. Don and Kath hope that there will be a change of government, and they give a party to watch the results. But as the tide turns against Labour, the good cheer pulls, and the faded ideals and disappointed hopes of the characters begin to reveal themselves. Williamson's brilliant satire examines a society on the threshold of emerging from a generation of comfortable, conservative, political and social values. David, thank you for joining me to talk about Don's Party. And for those who aren't fully aware of the broader socio-political context in which the play is set, I'd just like to quickly run through it. On the eve of the election in 1969, Labour had been in opposition for 20 years, but the social and political climate in Australia was beginning to shift, and Gough Whitlam, leader of the Labour Party at the time, called for quite radical change, wanting to reform the country's health service, lower the cost of housing, expand social services, abolish conscription, and pull Australian troops out of Vietnam and Malaysia. His appeal, as H.G. Kippax puts it, was to the suburbs, to the middle-class family man, and above all to the one voter in every four who was 30 or under. But Labour didn't win that night. Tell us what happened and why it was so devastating for Labour supporters. Well, after 20 years of Conservative rule, uh, the latter part of which took in the Vietnam War, which many of uh, my political persuasion felt was an unnecessary and unjust and very bloody war. There was a lot of social unrest at that time and a, a sense of a feeling uh, that Australia needed to be a fairer, more just place. And of course, it nearly did happen. The early results uh, showed a, a quite a big swing to Labour. Everyone was jubilant, but as the night wore on, the later votes drifted in, the postal votes always favour the Conservatives, or did at that time, because as Don says, they got more money to travel. And the early lead slowly whittled away, and we were back with another three years of the Conservative government. Now, Don's party was first performed in August 1971 at the Pram Factory, 
in Melbourne. And one year later, in her review for The Sydney Show, Catherine Brisbane wrote that unlike most of his contemporaries, David Williamson is not a satirist, but writes with an almost unshockable compassion. This motley group of people at the watershed of middle age have an inevitability and not a defeat, but a reconciliation to age. The voting counts, which crackle from the television through the evening, capture in a single image the author's compassionate view of these friends. He shares with them their hopes, their fiery facade, their faded radicalism. Now, you were obviously writing the play in the aftermath of the 1969 election, and I'd like to hear about how your own real-life experiences of that election infuse themselves within the story that you created. I'd have to say Don's party is uncomfortably accurate because friends of mine recognised themselves in it, and um, some were very pleased, some were not. Um, <laughs> it wasn't just the that election night party. There was a state election just preceding that, and uh, election night parties were part of our psyche. So I drew events from several parties that I'd been to and, of course, added a reasonable dollop of um, theatrical contrivance and imagination. But... The substance of the play and the characterizations were quite accurate. My experience did enter into the uh, the making of that play in quite a substantial way. Let's talk about the men. Don, Mal, Mac and Cawley all met at university. And at the beginning of part two, Cawley tells a tale of how they met. But it's already late in the evening and his remembrance is not particularly flattering. So I'd like to hear in more detail how you imagined the early days of their friendship. Well, look, the early days were exuberant. So alcohol, women, and then studies, a bad last, uh, were the priorities. You went to university then to have a great time. Now, today, the competition is so cutthroat that you go to university to cram yourself full of qualifications that... Uh, may get you an entry into a, a much more competitive job market. In those days, we didn't need to worry. If you got a university degree of any kind, five employers would be begging you to work for them. So the object wasn't to get honours or anything like that. It was to get a gentleman's degree, which was described as um, passing uh, with uh, the least effort, uh, the most fun, and going closest to failing and still getting through. That was... Um, if you did that, you were, uh, you'd succeeded in university life, so the attitudes were uh, a little different. But to enjoy yourself was the criteria, and to go down to the pub, to drink a lot, to leer at women, to try and pick them up unsuccessfully, um, it was all part of that camaraderie, and we weren't going to get too fussed by education. What I love about this play is that you always turn things on the head. I mean, you do in, in all of your work, really. Kath makes it pretty clear that the uh, romanticised notions of self that Don and Mal had are actually rather pathetic because the good old days weren't so good, really. She says, oh, they were great days, great bloody days, weren't they? Then why the hell did I have to put you on an invalid's diet because you had ulcers at the age of 25, because you couldn't fucking well cope with your job or anything else for that matter? And why did I have to cook all your meals and wash all your clothes, eh? because your little mummy hadn't told you that there's a fucking great world full of people out there that don't give a stuff about little Donny Henderson, boy wonder, prematurely retired. Yes, well, uh, the women were pretty fed up with us. Our fantasies of greatness didn't um, eventuate by and large, and we had to fit into a real world at last. The university wasn't a real world. It was, as I say, a world of drinking, boozing, 
trying to pick up women and a little bit of study. Most of us were bright enough to get through without killing ourselves. But beyond the, the privileged boundaries of the university, there was a world out there. It wasn't nearly as competitive as the contemporary world. But it, it had enough reality that the easy assumptions that we were going to um, be superstars um, were quickly uh, brought to heel. And I wonder about the kind of reverberations of that crash and the possible fear that one might feel of, of not being up to scratch after having thought that they were going to be this godlike figure in their own world. John Clark, the artistic director of NIDA for 35 years, he wrote the preface to Don's party, and he included a quote from then Minister for Transport and Shipping, Peter Nixon. Today's radicals are tomorrow's conservatives. The change comes when a man marries has children, and takes on responsibility. Do you think that responsibility makes us conservative? Is that part and parcel? I think in Don's party, incipient signs of conservatism uh, leak into the atmosphere later uh, in the night when Mel has an outburst about how unjust it is that his neighbour, who's a plumber, has a swimming pool, a big swimming pool, and he doesn't. In other words, in the material world, someone is doing a lot better than he is. So in that sense, yes, the the need for money is now a reality of life, particularly when he's had four kids. Uh, and these, pe- these people, in truth, when I wrote it, were only 28, 29, something like that. I said they were early 30s, but when I work out the time scale, they were more like 28, 29. Another huge change... Uh, from then to now, is the age of marriage. It was very rare for a woman not to be married over the age of 21, and it was rare for a man not to be married by 23 or 24. I was married at 23 to a wife of 20. My friend um, who I based Mel on was 22 and married someone who was 19. They had four children by the time he was, I think, 28. Wow. So the economic responsibility hit you a lot harder. There was no um, waiting around to find oneself, as um, my children are still trying to find themselves. Uh, All my friends' children are still trying to find themselves in their 30s. Well, we had no time for that. We had families very early on, and the realities of having to earn an income. You couldn't live with mum and dad, as many of our younger generations do now. You couldn't postpone life. Um, You couldn't indefinitely put off a family, as happens now, because the social norms were so strong that marriage happened young, economic responsibility was very quickly thrust upon you and um, was part of the reason for the ulcers and the uh, anxiety. (laughs) Do you earn enough money at the age of 28 to cope with four kids and uh, the social aspirations of parents who might want to put them into private schools? Um, So... It was a lot different in those days, and the tensions were a lot higher. And you came up against life far more quickly than today's youth came up against life. And I wonder whether or not you noticed, it it certainly seems like you did, especially in in the comedic aspects of the play, the fact that these adults are still behaving like adolescents in many ways. There's kind of a break there or a gap there in their ability to actually move past their adolescence or or their young adulthood that perhaps they didn't get time to, to do. Well, no, certainly 
they're behaving like adolescents in certain ways, but in other ways they're acting like realistic adults. What about the pornographic objects? Is that the sort of thing that just would have happened at a party at the time? Would the men yeah. have done things like that? Yes, yes it would have. I mean, this, uh, 1969 was uh, a year before Germaine Greer wrote her seminal uh, The Female Eunuch, which raised the consciousness of um, Australian women to the point where they started to become op- openly rebellious at the male assumption that they could um, exhibit sexist behaviour whenever they wanted to. So 1969 wasn't yet at the point where women felt they could strongly object to male sexist behaviour and they were supposed to find it amusing, which they don't in Don's party when the pornographic objects come in. So the women are already starting to fester and um, and towards the end of the evening... Um, uh, Jenny uh, lets loose with her feelings about her husband. Mm. So there's a lot of dis- dissatisfaction with the um, with the norms of the time. Early marriage, lots of children, um, women not uh, going on to careers or finding it difficult to go on to careers. There was a lot of festering tensions starting to arise, but they hadn't been articulated yet by the feminist movement to any great degree. Right. Well, let's talk about the women and actually expand it out a little bit further to begin with. Uh, John McCallum has quoted you from around the time that the play was written, saying, there is an awful Australian uniqueness, and the job of the theatre is to find out what it is. What is that awful Australian uniqueness, and how do you think that the women in Don's party, or the characters, let's start with the characters, how do you think they represent it? Well, part of the awful Australian uniqueness was um, to do with the relationship and friction between the sexes. From way back, Australian men and women were uneasy in each other's presence. Um, I think if you go right back to our roots, there were five men for every woman um, in the early days of the colony. So women both had a power uh, and um, over men and generated a resentment that they weren't more easily available. And I think traces of that moved on throughout history. So it was always an uneasy relationship between men and women. Men did tend to objectify uh, or want to objectify women as as desirable sexual objects, but women resisted this with varying degree of of tolerance. Um, And at the time of Don's party, the the so-called American sexual revolution had just begun and um, Australian males took this on board and thought, well, this flower power 68, 66-68, when sex is an activity to be enjoyed without guilt and uh, why are these uh, women sort of objecting to um, getting together and having fun? Um, There was a sort of an incorporation of the 60s America starting to happen in Australia. So all those cross-currents uh, were there. And as Don and Mal say to each other at the end of the night, it should be perfectly natural for me to just offer you Kath and for you to just offer me Jenny. Is that the sort of thing that you think might have been a confused mix of this flower power kind of openness about sexuality and a general male chauvinism? Yes, yes, it was a, a reinforcement uh, feedback mechanism, I think, um, because at that time there were films like Bob, Ted, Carol and Alice, which were openly 
suggesting that um, that wife swapping was normal and swinging was normal, and uh, th- this was stuff coming out of Hollywood at the time. So imagine what effect that had on Australian males thinking that Nirvana was just around the corner, that they suddenly would have uh, a plethora of available women throwing themselves at uh, <laughs> the men. So it was all totally fanciful. And it's not just the men that are actually imposing their ideas about right and wrong, should and shouldn't when it comes to sex. Mm-hmm. Jenny objectifies Susan at one point and says that she has cow eyes, big tits, vacuous chatter. Yes. Um, and then at another moment with Don when she's actually revealing to him the depth of her animosity towards Mal but her sense of entrapment and not being able to move out of this, this marriage that she finds herself in with him down the road having lost connection. She says quite flatly to Don, if you had a choice between me and her, who are you going to choose? So there's this kind of transference in that sense. How did you come to represent the women in the play, being a man, writing a woman? What approach did you take at that time to ensure that they were not stereotypes? Basically, I listened to what they were saying. I listened to uh, Jenny's diatribe was not unlike... uh, (laughs) Diatribe I got on on the night. Uh, all I could do was uh, depict it as the frustrations as accurately as I could, and the tensions between the wives as accurately as I could. Um, basically, Jenny and Kath don't like each other for moralistic reasons that are nothing to do with sex. Kath believes that uh, Mel and Jenny don't live within their means, and um, are far too lavish with, with their presents to their kids and then they borrow money from them and they're even more lavish with it. So she's very... Uh, there are a lot of tensions about lifestyle as well as sex. Mm. And their sense of entrapment is in a funny way imposed upon them but also self-imposed. I mean, Jenny is clearly an incredibly intelligent woman. Um, she started a degree that she didn't finish and she tells Don that she's not interested in finishing it. Kath may not have the same sharp access to mental dexterity, but she's allowed herself to be constricted. At the very early stage in the play, Evan says to her, oh, did you come to our last barbecue? And and Kath says, no, I think Don had something on, as though she couldn't actually go to a barbecue without him. She couldn't have a child for seven years because he didn't want to. She wasn't allowed to do pottery because he thought it was mundane. And when she asked him why he married such a mundane person, he said, well, I didn't want anyone swamping my personality. So there is a lot of texture to the women there. And I just wonder when they found a point of self-actualization and moved past this repression that was partly self-imposed but also imposed upon them. I think as they moved towards their 30s, they, um, they, most of them found the situations intolerable, the marriages broke up, and those early marriages, which should never have happened, by and large ended in very substantial divorce rates. And a lot of women went back to university to, uh, or wherever they'd left off to finish their qualifications. And there was a movement out of marriage, but it's not yet there in Don's party. They're still in the midst of a a marriage uh, that they don't uh, particularly like. Yes, well, well, Mel and Don are so convinced that they're superior human beings um, is that their feeling is that their wives should support their... uh, 
deluded aspirations uh, and be prepared to sacrifice their own aspirations uh, for that. But that's still a common thread in many marriages. It hasn't totally disappeared. And I wonder whether or not Jenny's prediction would be true, that if she broke up with Mal, that he'd carry on and he'd be near the pinnacle of his career and he'd still be young enough to enjoy it. Yes, that, that did often happen, and the, the breakup of marriages often favoured men in that the, um, the laws at that time allowed um, men to keep a lot of their income and the support levels required weren't great. Uh, so even breaking out of marriage, women um, often found that they were at a disadvantage still. What I really appreciate about all of the characters in the play is how you use politics and sex to gradually shift our perceptions of them, reminding us that political conservatism does not equate to sexual conservatism and vice versa. And in this regard, some of the characters behave exactly as we imagine that they would, and some behave in ways that are radically different to what we would expect them to. Tell me where you think sex and politics stop running parallel and begin to run perpendicular to each other. Well, it's often said, um, particularly in England, that conservative politicians were into all kinds of kinky sex. Uh, The Labour politicians were after money. The conservatives were after um, sex. And so I don't think um, sex follows party lines or predilections. Uh, I think Jodie in that play is a dead set conservative, but she is after some sexual excitement after having not experienced much in her marriage as she gets drunker and the night gets on. So I think that the Christian conservative thing is only a recent phenomenon. I don't think um, I don't think there was any sense that um, that conservatives were any better behaved in terms of their extramarital relations or liaisons than um, than uh, radicals. And you were talking about Jody being, you know, a, a clearly a conservative. She says that she votes for the Liberals because of an emotional reaction to thinking of Labour as coarse men in overalls. That was actually said to me. (laughs) That's not an exaggerated line. That's so bizarre. uh, Oh my goodness, Labour Party is those men in overalls. And Mal says it's not a trade unionist party anymore. And she says, I understand, it's just an emotional thing. And you get this sense of her being quite vapid and and vacuous and you know she's moving from a $20,000 house to a $30,000 house so that she's got extra room for the kids and all of these kind of stereotypical qualities that she has and then she's um she's quite naughty isn't she yes yeah well that was that was fairly true to life too i mean uh, you could never predict uh, where the um where the, the ladies who would stray were going to come from and on the flip side, Kath says about Kerry, I think Kerry's pretty conventional about sex, actually. Prolific, but conventional. So here's this opposite end of the spectrum, this artist that's connected to you know, the earth and the cosmos, and obviously a, a Labour voter who really is attracted to Cooley, this quite kind of brutish, arrogant, brutally frank man. Was that another thing that you noticed, that kind of maybe she was connected to an animism in him? Well, look... It's there in our literature right back. I remember um, Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew uh, was a Shakespearean coolie, arrogant, forceful, confident, thinking he could crush Kate. And in the end, he does. I mean, there are modern interpretations of the, uh, 
the play that, that somehow find that he hasn't, but <laughs> when you read the words... Uh, chauvinist behaviour has always attracted a certain class of women because it's forceful, it's confident, it's uh, full of display, as, as Cooley is. It's a timeless thing. It's not just a thing of the 60s. No, um, and I think Kerry's using him just as much as he's using her. Yes, yes. I'm interested to know why you decided to make all of the other men besides Cooley so feckless. Don can't bring himself to have an affair with Susan and gratify himself until he's checked with Kath whether or not it's okay, checking in with Mummy in in some senses if you want to stretch that bow. Mal is impotent, if you want to use that word. He he can't really make it happen. And... (laughs) And Mac falls asleep when he has an opportunity with Jody and Evan, I think, is pretty clear, and Simon as well. But what was that about? Well, there was a lot of male bravado. Uh, being sexually potent was a necessary status symbol amongst your fellow males. So um, there was always a striving to uh, depict yourself as highly desirable and successful with women. Often the reality didn't <laughs> didn't live up to the stereotype, and um, and all Mel's friends, including his wife, know he's hopeless and that he's so repulsive that most women would run a mile from him. But he still has to do this facade of the great seducer. And being successful with women was a, was almost on top of the status hierarchy of what you had to be uh, to be a male in those days. And I think in many ways it's not terribly different. Well, I guess that's where the comedy comes from, really. So the whole play wanders between the axes of politics and sex, two things along with religion that we're always told we shouldn't talk about at parties. But obviously they're a great minefield of humour and drama, and yet it's the humour that I'm more interested in because you could have easily made this into a dense and tough piece about fading youth and ideological turmoil, but you didn't. There are serious issues at play, the future of a nation and of individuals' lives, but humour is the driving force. And I wonder if there was a moment you decided that Don's Party would be a comedy or if it was just always destined to be one. I think Don's Party was always destined to be a comedy because um, comedy is forgiving of human foibles and human nature, and I think that's part of my psyche that um, I'm never too quick to cast absolute judgments on other people because I know how uh, flawed I am myself and um, I think at its extreme satire is savagely judgmental about its characters but in so doing that implies that the writer of satire is above these criticisms and he's looking down on um, on humanity from afar and saying what, what feckless weak horrible little creatures these are. I've never felt like that. I've always felt just as flawed as my characters. Uh, I try and understand them. I try and realise that they're subject to the same deep currents of human nature that we have been subject to from time immemorial and that those deep currents are not going to change and sexual uh, impulses are very deeply embedded into our psyches and the need for power and status and influence is embedded deeply in our psyches. So if you're a a comedic writer, you understand that. You understand that there are certain givens in human behaviour that are always going to be irrational and difficult 
sexuality being one of them, the need for power and status being another. So this is very much a character-driven piece, and the structure is in many ways quite loose. It's a succession of scenes full of pointed chatter between a motley crew. But did you feel that the evening itself, a party, the expectation of a Labour victory, an 8% swing in early tallies, and then the deterioration of that swing, did you think that that offered enough scaffolding to build up and then tear down? Yes, yeah, I wasn't too um, too fussed about traditional three-act dramatic structure. As you say, the party itself was a structure. Early hopes later disappointments, and you could mirror the early hopes, later disappointments in the relationships um, uh, flooding in later in the night. But also in the end, a sense of forgiveness and compassion. All the people who have misbehaved sort of forgive each other. And it's interesting that the people I wrote about then are still friends of mine now, 42 years on. <laughs> even even the character I based on, Mel, has forgiven me and is still a, a, a good friend. So I wasn't being judgmental, I was just observing the way we were. David, thank you very much for talking to me about Don's party. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.